latest edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Hello, everyone. My name is Chigo Zaram Ikeke, and I'm one of the integrated cardiothoracic surgery residents at the University of Pittsburgh. My guest here is Dr. James D. Lukacic, who's the Henry T. Bonson Professor of Cardiothoracic Surgery and the Chairman of the Department of Cardiothoracic Surgery at UPMC. He is also the Chief of the Thoracic and Foregut Surgery Division and UPMC's Esophageal Lung Surgery Institute Director. He has published extensively on surgical approaches to foregut disease and has pioneered the way for minimally invasive approach for foregut operations. Good morning, Chigo. <clears throat> Looking forward to uh, reviewing this case with you. So, Dr. Lukasic, um, we have a 53-year-old um, female non-smoker with the BMI 25 who presents to the clinic with complaints of increased nausea and regurgitation. She has been hospitalized for multiple episodes of recurring pneumonia over the past five to six months, but she denies any significant weight loss, chest pain, or abdominal pain. Her history is remarkable for nissen fundoplication in 2010, and she also has a history of Crohn's disease, that's post iliocolonic resection, and subtotal colectomy. Of note, she's on Zantac twice a day. So based on her symptoms and her previous surgical history, uh, what is your approach from a worker perspective for this patient? This is a complex patient. Uh, I think what, what I think of when I hear of a patient like this is one, um, the most important part of the history to me is the priorness and fundoplication because the problem with that fundoplication could be responsible for all of this. Now, given her history of inflammatory bowel disease, uh, if that has left her with strictures or uh, partial small bowel obstruction, that could be contributing significantly. So we'd want to keep all those things in mind as we walk through the differential. So my first question is, was her, did her Nissen fundoplication take care of her symptoms in 2010? And were her symptoms primarily heartburn and if so, tell me about her heartburn the last 10 years. Has it been under control from the Nissen? Yeah, so prior to her Nissen fundoplication in 2010, her recurrent symptoms happened around a year or two after her surgery had started, where she had more concerns of heartburn and problems with dysphagia. So her, her problems with heartburn recurred? Correct. Okay. And tell me, how's her inflammatory bowel been? I know she's had the surgery, the iliocolic resection. Uh, are we presuming that her IBD is under control? Has that been uh, in remission? Yeah, so she saw her gastroenterologist uh, months before um, her surgery, and she's been seen routinely, and she's stabilized on medication and has not undergone any surgical procedure since 1991 for her Crohn's disease. So, so we're going to, for the moment, presume that the differential diagnosis, number one, is a problem with the Nissen wrap. So my first study is going to be a, a barium esophagram. And in this case, because of the history of the inflammatory bowel disease, I would get a small bowel follow-through and potentially a barium enema. I basically want to see the GI tract in its entirety, if possible, looking for problems at the wrap level, above the wrap in terms of esophageal motility, uh, gastric emptying, uh, small bowel follow-through, 
and, and ultimately her flow through the ileocolic area. So those are all important things that can contribute to uh, symptoms after a Nissen fundoplication. Even if that has gone awry, they can multiply the problems. So she undergo undergoes an esophagram. Uh, the fundoplication has herniated above the diaphragm, but the fundoplication appears partially intact but loose, and she has no signs of gastroesophageal reflux on the esophagram. Um, the rest of the small bifolto is otherwise unremarkable. Okay, and what about her response to medication? You mentioned she's on two Zantac. That's a rather modest regimen for a bad GERD. Uh, has she been tried on a proton pump inhibitor? She has. And? Minimal response, and her gastroenterologist put her on the Zantac. Okay, so, so no response. Well, I think we got to back up a little bit and, and go to some basic tests. Uh, it would be nice to know what her Bravo and Mano were before her initial Nissen, and it would be nice to know currently what is her Bravo score and what is her manometry. So her Bravo score or her manometry before her 2010 Nissen showed 50% peristalsis with preserved amplitudes. Uh, and her surgery at the time, again, she had a, a small hiatal hernia and a three-stage nissen fundoplication over a 60-inch bougie. Her current Bravo study shows hypertensive upper esophageal sphincter with a normal relaxation and normal tensive LES. And she has 80% peristalsis with 70% incomplete bolus clearance with a Demisa score of 14. 14, and that was uh, a two-day score, a composite? Correct. And if so... The, the, the beauty of the Bravo is you get a two-day score. Uh, so a 14 can still be abnormal. If day one is 28 and day two is zero, well, you got a 14, which may be considered normal. But what was day one and what was day two? So day one was 12 and day two was 15. Okay. So we, both of those are really normal in many labs. Some will consider over 14 as borderline abnormal. Uh, so you really don't have much to go on by the, uh, the Bravo. Uh, now, sometimes there's a symptom correlation. Uh, you'd want to look at the individual components of that Bravo score. It might be helpful. But at the end of the day, you've got to decide uh, based on other criteria because Bravo alone is not going to guide you here. So um, she does undergo EGD that shows evidence of the pride and vacation. Uh, and there's no signs of any uh, inflammation, mucosal abnormalities, or ulceration. There's a wrap slip that is now on gastric mucosa. So there's about a 4-centimeter hiatal hernia, and the fundification does seem to have, been, have migrated. Okay. So uh, now we, we're going to look at, uh, has she attempted any lifestyle management changes? Uh, how aggressive has she been on the medical management of her GERD, you mentioned she's tried a PPI. Has that been a consistent uh, regimented approach? Uh, has someone counseled her on how and when to take the medication? Has she been tried on different PPIs? Because sometimes a Nexium response might be better than uh, an omeprazole response. It's worth exploring the medical management. Uh, and has she been counseled about her diet? Is she a fast food eater? Is she, is she chewing her food well? Has uh, she been constipated? Is she on a narcotic? Many things can influence GERD, uh, and these lifestyle management changes, uh, such as dietary compliance, 
chewing your food well, uh, getting rid of some things that might be uh, triggers for her GERD, whether that's red wine or chocolate or peppermint or fried foods or whatever, we want to look into these lifestyle management things. Has she tried elevating the head of her bed? So are we assuming that someone has counseled her through carefully all lifestyle management and she's failed that? Correct. She eats small frequent meals during the day. Uh, she does lay um, flat um, at night, but she does report inconsistencies with taking her medications uh, over the past uh, 10 years. Well, if she's been inconsistent with her meds, the first thing to try is, is put her on a PPI. Uh, if she hasn't tried omeprazole, that's a reasonable start. I put her on omeprazole once daily in the morning, about a half an hour before she eats something. And I'd be regimented about that, taking it daily. And then I'd like to see her back in a couple weeks, uh, along with elevating the head of her bed, approximately 15 degrees. Uh, a wedge, a foam wedge works well. Uh, some blocks under the head of bed can, can work well, but I like the foam wedge better, about a 15-degree angle. And uh, I would work on that first and then bring her back in a couple weeks and see where we are. So she comes back in a couple weeks and follow clinic uh, reports being compliant with the dietary changes, sleep habits, and medical uh, conditions, as well as her medication intake. But she still reports the same symptoms of regurgitation, some heartburn, particularly at night. And what was her last episode of pneumonia? Four months prior to the follow-up And visit. Is this occurring? Is she waking up at night coughing? Is it during a meal? Uh, does she seem to be aspirating? Was there any evidence of aspiration on her barium swallow? And has she had a modified swallow? So she's been uh, treated successfully for her um, aspiration pneumonia. She does report intermittent coughs um, throughout the day, um, but she has not undergone and modified um, swallow since her last follow-up. And has she been diagnosed with asthma or bronchitis in addition to these intermittent pneumonias? No, she has not. I see. And has she seen a pulmonologist? No, she has not. Okay. Sometimes the GERD can, in at least 15% of patients, you'll see these atypical symptoms of cough, pneumonia, which are not classic GERD symptoms, but they're certainly classic atypical symptoms. So uh, I think we can... Consider having her see a pulmonologist, uh, and uh, has that been done? So, shortly after her first follow-up visit, she did see a pulmonologist. Uh, before, she received PFTs that were uh, unremarkable. And did he think that the, that he, uh, the thoracic surgery team regarding her symptoms, because he believed this is due to her GERD symptoms? So, I think at this point, we have to consider just how severe these symptoms are, and, and do we think the pneumonias were... Clearly, pneumonia is related to her wrap. Uh, that may be some uh, presumptive evidence, uh, but the wrap clearly is herniated. It's a significant problem for her. Uh, if her symptom score is high, in other words, I ask these patients on a scale of 1 to 10, how bad is this bothering you? Uh, are you losing weight? Are you able to eat a normal diet? Um, are you being awakened at night with these problems? Uh, so if the score of symptoms are high, and they have the symptoms correlate with the recurrence of her hiatal hernia, uh, then I'm going to recommend consideration for reoperation, redo NISM. So, uh, since that, based on her objective studies and her symptoms, and you're making decisions to go ahead and pursue a surgery, what are your thoughts going into the surgery since she's had a redo case? What is your well, approach? a redo is not a minor issue. Yeah. 
So you need to get all your ducks in a row. You need to make sure that, indeed, uh, her symptoms are severe. If she's going to tell you, oh, no, once in a while when I overeat, I get a little heartburn, well, that's not severe enough. That means you got to slow down your eating and, and avoid the triggers. So could you walk me through the surgical operation for a patient like this? Sure. I, I would still start with a scope. I like to scope the patient myself the day of surgery. I'm looking for things like ferrets and how big is the hiatal hernia? Could we potentially have a cancer? I mean, these are issues that, that are, are present in a small number of, of GERD patients. But assuming there's no cancer, I see the hiatal hernia. I'm going to be careful of, of how much air I insufflate during the endoscopy, which can give you some problems during the laparoscopic phase. So this is not a time to bring the medical student in, then the intern, and then the resident. Everybody's insufflating air. You can really fill the bowel up, and the stomach can become quite bloated. So you have to do a careful endoscopy, get down into the stomach, and then empty the stomach uh, as best you can. And then I'd start off laparoscopically. Uh, after placing ports in the usual fashion, we typically use five ports placed across the upper abdomen, and then we begin the operation. Could you walk me through the surgery? Well, the goals of surgery are basically to, one, restore normal anatomy. Two, to avoid injuring the existing anatomy. So if we're assuming that the vagus nerves are intact going in because we don't have dumping, we don't have delayed gastric emptying, we need to do everything in our power to preserve the vagus nerves. Uh, we are, our goal, again, is to restore normal anatomy. A redo Nitsen is not going to be as simple as loosening the wrap, quote, uh, adding a stitch to tighten it up. No, that's not going to work in the vast majority of cases. It would be rare that it would be going to work that plane until I run out of room. I'm either going to run into a bad scar area or I'm going to be concerned about getting into the wrap or the esophagus, and then I might then switch gears and go to the left cruise. Come around the line of the sh short gastrics, make sure the shorties have been taken down, expose that left cruise carefully. And again, and I'm trying to preserve the cruise. You beat up the cruise, you'll have trouble with uh, getting them back together, and the need for mesh may, may come into play. If you're careful with the cruise, preserving them, preserving the lining of the cruise, careful with avoiding enterotomies, uh, you are going to be able to slowly work your way through this wrap. Now, the steps, again, paramount are restore normal anatomy. Two, avoid injury to the existing anatomy. Three, moving from areas of known into the unknown, like the right cruise moving towards the wrap, like the left cruise moving towards the left side of the wrap. I avoid anterior and digging right into the wrap itself for a while. Now, next, I may start on the limb of the wrap and slowly sweep everything down underneath the wrap as it comes uh, towards the suture line of the actual Nissen, which might be herniated quite a bit ways into the hiatus. So it's going to be a process. A redo Nissen can take hours of careful dissection. If the liver is stuck on top, you've got to get the liver off. Uh, you've got to find the caudate lobe. You've got to get it away from the right cruise. You've got to work along that left curl border, uh, uh, being care careful to avoid injury to the spleen. It might be stuck up there significantly. Uh, so once you do that and work off the limbs of the wrap, uh, then I begin to approach the sutures of the Nissen, and I like to take the sutures out one at a time. Some people have advocated sliding a stapler in to, to separate the Nissen. 
I'm not a fan of that. I think that's going to, to a degree, distort my anatomy, might injure vagus nerves. Oh, sure, if it's a simple one or two stitches holding you and you're actually lifting the wrap up, you might try a stapler, but I have not found that to be helpful at all. I like to dissect out the sutures one at a time. Each stitch I remove from the cruise and from the wrap is, a, is another step towards restoring normal anatomy. I do not think you can do an effective redo without completely restoring normal anatomy, preserving vagal nerves, and preserving the cruise. Assuming the surgery goes well, I'm going I'm to assume then that we have now restored normal anatomy. We see the vagus nerve. Now the question is, however, what are we going to do? Are we going to give the patient another 360 Nissen? Well, maybe. That's where the history is important. If we go back in time and the patient said, yeah, that first Nissen was great. On the other hand, they say, you know, it took care of my heart but I had horrible gas. I was bloated every day. I had, had very excessive flatulence. You may want to consider a looser wrap, potentially a partial wrap. I think those are all decided upon actually before you get into surgery with a, a, a dialogue with the patient. The tighter the wrap, probably the less GERD you're going to have. Uh, however, the tighter the wrap, more side effects like dysphagia, like uh, uh, excessive flatulence, like inability to burp, inability to vomit. Those are all part of anti-reflux surgery. But the severity of those side effects can almost negate the benefits of stopping the heartburn. So we have to have that plan in mind before we go into the surgery. So assuming we were going to redo the Nissen because the patient had a, had a good result the first time, I would typically do it over a 52 to 56 bougie, depending on the size of the patient. I might be influenced somewhat by uh, motor function, etc., if there's some motor dysfunction, it might go with a little bit bigger bougie, a little looser wrap, potentially a nearness, and we call it, or a toupee or a door. All those can be effective operations in the setting of esophageal uh, motor disorders. So assuming we're doing the floppiness and, and we think that the motor function was adequate, the patient didn't have much dysphagia, then I would probably redo the floppiness and over somewhere around a 54 French bougie. Typically, I do a two-stitch Nissen. Then I repair the cruise, I start posteriorly, and then I like to uh, make that judgment call of how tight do you make it. Well, uh, not too tight, not too loose. So it is a judgment call. Um, if you like to do it with a bougie in place, that can give you some assessment of how tight you want it. Um, I personally actually take the bougie out before I repair the cruise. And so now it's, it's a judgment call of sliding your instrument in that cruise and trying to determine is, is it about where you want to be. I like it to be uh, uh, closed, but not compressing the esophagus. Um, so I'm typically going to get, again, start with a posterior repair. I rarely need mesh because I've gone through great lengths to preserve the cruise. If the cruise are damaged, I might need mesh. Uh, if I need mesh, I might reach for a bio mesh if it's minimal injury. Would I use a Gore-Tex ever? Uh, rarely. Uh, but you got to do what you have to do to get those crews together. I will say that a, a pneumothorax on the left side, sometimes intentionally, sometimes it occurs unintentionally. But either way, it gives you a floppy diaphragm. And if you don't have an injury to the pleura on the left and you don't have a floppy diaphragm, you might want to consider putting in a pigtail catheter as part of your goal 
to give you a floppy left hemidiaphragm, which will allow you to pull that diaphragm over tension-free and make the repair without the use of mesh. Using that approach, we use mesh in less than 1% of our cases, but it's common to need that little floppy uh, partial tension pneumo that we induce intentionally at times to give us that mobility of the left hemidiaphragm. So post-operatively, what are your considerations as far as management? Well, immediately post-op, we're going to leave the OR with an NG tube in that we place under direct vision. I like the stomach to be empty in the recovery room. After that, you can take out the, the, the uh, NG. Now, if it required a collis, we didn't talk about esophageal shortening, but that's part of the NISTIN, is observing for adequate tension-free intra-abdominal esophagus. If you don't have it, you have to work in the mediastinum to attempt to get it. If you can't get tension-free intra-abdominal esophagus, then you're going to need a collis. A collis gastroplasty is typically done using the wedge gastroplasty approach, which we've written on, and there are videos to, to, to guide one through that. Typically, you're going to want to get help from a senior partner, if at all possible, or send it to a group that does a lot of these. This is not a redo and is not for the new graduate that doesn't have a track record of redo nissens. Uh, so uh, if you do need a, a redo nissen, I would uh, recommend having a senior help for this. And if you need a college gastroplasty, you should be prepared to do so. So once you've got the wrap done, you've got the NG tube in, uh, then we are going to take the patient recovery room and uh, typically keep them a day or two. NG tube comes out early, maybe even the first evening. Barium swallow the next day. Uh, are we looking for leaks? Sure, but we're also looking to create a roadmap of what is the new anatomy. The popularity of the Nissen has waxed and waned because there are significant numbers of recurrences. So I would encourage all foregut surgeons to get that barium swallow as your first order of business to reestablish your new anatomy. Now, when that patient comes in in, in a, a year or two with problems, you have a baseline to compare to. If you don't have that baseline, you don't really know what you created the day of surgery. It's great to pat yourself on the back and say, I don't need a barium swallow. I think that would be uh, okay if we had a track record of, of Nissens that were stable, uh, low recurrence rates, popularity is high, et cetera, et cetera. But we're struggling currently to, uh, to convince GI docs and patients that this operation can be done uh, effectively and consistently. So I like the barium swallow on every single patient as a new baseline for which to compare to. And of course, it does rule out leaks and rule out early recurrences. Vomiting, retching in the recovery room, big problem. We got to avoid that at, if at all uh, possible. Great. So the patient does well postoperatively. How do you counsel her going forward? Well, I'm going to likely taper off, if not stop completely, all PPIs and, and anti uh, uh, GERD medications because, in the majority of Vernus in patients, certainly in the beginning, over 90% should be able to come off their. their PPIs. Uh, there will be some that are going to need, need it. Uh, a collis does leave some gastric mucosa at or near the wrap, so they can suffer from some mild dyspepsia. It's not volume regurgitation, but they still might have some acid symptoms, so leaving them on a modest uh, uh, GERD regimen uh, can help. Uh, if you didn't do a collis, the need for a PPI 
really shouldn't be a need. So uh, we have to handle that individually, but I'd say the majority start either on a low dose or we taper them completely off their PPIs. And also with regards to her dietary change, do you start the wrong clears immediately postoperatively? Do you, do you have a regimen for the dietary intake? Yeah, dietary counseling, we have a nutritionist and, and really there's a lot of uh, steps to this. <clears throat> I like to start off somewhat modest. Uh, we move quickly from clears to soft foods and things like crackers and <laughs> foods that crumble easily, you know, eggs, uh, liquids, protein shakes, cream of wheat, oatmeal. I mean, these can be started essentially on day one or two. Uh, steaks, uh, you know, fruits, raw vegetables, uh, breads. I think you have to introduce a little more slowly and consider things like ground beef before I would go to a steak. I would certainly recommend toasting the breads or crackers before I would go with, say, a bagel or a very doughy bread. Uh, a flank steak or a chuck steak might be a wow. They might never tolerate that. You don't know. Uh, we call it our 25 chew rule. We like the patients to really take their time with their meal. I'd rather see them eating small, frequent meals, avoiding carbonation. Uh, they should keep a diary of their food if they're struggling at all with their diet and determine what foods are causing them problems. Uh, and some are, are very predictable, and we counsel them in that regard. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Lucas, for your time. I'm doing this podcast. Thanks, Hugo.